Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Jessiel Izidek. He's a professor and scientific director at the Diabetes Center for Indiana Biosciences Research Institute in Indianapolis. So we're going to talk about his research. He's also a professor at the University Libre de Brussels. So, Jessiel, thank you for coming. I know it's late, and uh, hopefully you're relaxing, having some tea, and, and enjoying the podcast as we go. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to join it. I think you have a very interesting podcast, and I will be happy to contribute. Okay. Well, very good. Desio, tell me about your research uh, surrounding diabetes. So we focus most on type 1, uh, which is a form of uh, autoimmune. It's an autoimmune disease where the immune system goes wrong, let's say, and start to recognize the pancreatic beta cells as something foreign that needs to be uh, attacked and eventually destroyed. And uh, this goes on for a long period. And eventually the patient is going to lose most of their pancreatic beta cells and they will become insulin dependent for life. So they will need to monitor their glucose levels several times a day or doing continuous glucose um, monitoring, and they will need to inject insulin several times a day. And since this is an autoimmune disease, uh, most research in the field has focused on the immune system. So people used to see the pancreatic beta cells that produce insulin as uh, inert victims of the immune system. And we took a different approach to the problem. Instead of looking uh, primarily at the uh, immune system, we look at at the pancreatic beta cells. And uh, we have been pursuing this research line for many years. And I think now it's becoming well accepted the concept that there is a dialogue between the target beta cells and the attacking immune system. So the beta cells deliver signals to the immune system that make them more uh, visible, one one could say. And in individuals with a particular genetical background, this will uh, boost this autoimmune response So my whole research has been in trying to clarify which are the words of this dialogue between the pancreatic beta cells and the immune system, why this dialogue goes wrong, which is the genetical background that contributed for it to go go wrong, and how can you turn this uh, deleterious dialogue into a more polite conversation where the immune system is not going to attack the beta cells. So this is more or less our uh, global approach to the problem. So are people that have type 1, they're, it's a weird question, they're born with it, but they may not get it until they're 
what, seven, eight, 10, 15 years old? It's, to some extent, this is correct. In most cases, let's say the earlier the disease starts is around six months of life, but it can start at any time during the life of an uh, individual. So there is a strong genetic predisposition but if you look at monozygotic twins, the concordance is around 50%. So there is a clear genetical predisposition, but you also need something else. You need an, most probably an uh, environmental signal, which can be a viral infection or other signal that still remain to be discovered that acting on this genetical background will eventually lead to disease. Is there a triggering event in a person's life? Do they tend to get sick with a viral infection or some other infection, and then that leads to type 1? Or is it just out of nowhere, they start getting thirsty and tired and losing weight and it's no, you know, having these that, symptoms? That's a good question. So uh, we now know that this is a chronic autoimmune disease. So there are studies where people follow babies that are genetically at, at risk until some of them develop autoantibodies against the pancreatic beta cells. And then years later, they can develop disease. But so is not a sudden phenomenon. It's a chronic autoimmune disease that become clinically uh, manifest when enough beta cells have been destroyed. And you can detect these people that are, that are at higher risk by measuring autoantibodies against the pancreatic beta cells. The key question is what triggered this autoimmune response. And uh, we today, we don't know for sure. It's probably that in some individuals is a chronic viral infection which if the individual has the predisposing genetical background can trigger this autoimmune response. In other individuals, we just don't know. And this is very disturbing because the incidence of type one has been growing. Uh, for instance, if you look in the north of uh, Europe, between the 50s and now, it has uh, duplicated several times. So. Today, for instance, if you look at, at Finland, in the 50s, the incidence was around 10 cases per year per 100,000 people. Today is around 60. So it went up sixfold over 60, 70 years. And we really don't know why. Have you been able to look at the beta cells before they're killed? Can you do uh, you know, epigenetic marks? sequencing on them or looking at them and seeing how they've, uh, they change over time? Or would that uh, you know, kill the patient to do any biopsies? It doesn't kill, but it poses a serious health risk. So there was a group in Norway who convinced the people with further type 1 to volunteer to have pancreatic biopsies. So they got material from the pancreas from six patients but one of them had a serious complication. So the conclusion was that it's not ethically acceptable to biopsy people with type 1. And the main reason is that you cannot, at that moment, offer any therapy. Of course, we can offer uh, therapies to try to at least 
experimentally to delay disease, but uh, a biopsy would be justifiable only if it would lead to specific therapies. And we are not there today. So most of the knowledge that we have gained in the last uh, 10, 20 years is based on studies of pancreatic material of people who unfortunately died, let's say in the early stages of disease, so we can recover their islets of Langerhans, and also studies where people who are uh, organ donors, for instance, somebody, I don't know, get brain dead for any reason, and this person is generously volunteering to donate the heart, the lung, the lungs, and the retina. The pancreas can also be donated, and uh, islets of Langerhans can be isolated, and this can be used for research. So a lot of our research today is done uh, based on this uh, general's uh, organ donors. But so coming back to your question, there is no possibility to biopsy in a recurrent way. We have been looking for epigenetic markers of the disease, both in type 1 and in type 2 diabetes mellitus. We have some indication, and actually this is a work that we did together with Miriam Knopp and Francois Fuchs that you interviewed. And there are some uh, epigenetic markers for the beta cells in type 2, but for type 1, this remains to be discovered. What happened to the six people that did the voluntary biopsy? Were those samples preserved? Yes, they were studied in a very intensive way. So uh, they did RNA sequencing. So they studied all genes expressed and material were preserved for histology. So we collaborated with these colleagues uh, in Norway. So we have two of our papers. We used histology from this, this pancreas. This is an interesting story because this, these patients who volunteered, they were doing to help their children. So they were young people, mostly young in their 20, 30, who just got uh, type 1 diabetes mellitus, and many of them had children. And if the fathers, particularly, has type 1, there is an increased risk for the children. So they were willing to undergo this, this procedure as a way to help research in general and hopefully to develop ways to protect their own children. But uh, the risk is too high. I don't think it's uh, acceptable to do this uh, procedure today. And in terms of treatment, I guess it's too radical to do some level of immune suppression instead well, of uh, to preserve you know, pancreatic function? No, this, this has been tried. There are several uh, clinical trials that have been used. The most recent was with, uh, it's a therapy called anti-CD3. So you target one of the T-cell population and you try to do a mild immunosuppression. None of these therapies up to today was able to really prevent disease, so they delay it. For instance, anti-CD3 may delay the outbreak for one or two years. But again, it's a delicate balance because you are dealing with many patients who are children or young uh, adults, 
immunosuppression is not without risks. And there is today a therapy for type 1 that works, which is insulin therapy. It's not perfect, but it still it works. Let's say most patients can have a pretty good life. So you need to balance the risk of the immunosuppression against the, let's say, available therapy. So what we and other people are trying to do today is to combine therapies, not so much immunosuppression, but try to re-educate the immune system to make it forget the pancreatic beta cells on one side, and on the other side, introduce therapies that may increase beta cell resistance against the, the immune uh, attack. So this is an ongoing uh, work. Do people that have type 1, do they, do they ever get pancreatic cancer? Or are they immune to it? Or are they predisposed to it? They are not immune to it. To my knowledge, there is no clear indication that they are predisposed. The main correlation is with type 2. And in many cases, diabetes mellitus is a side effect and a first manifestation of pancreatic cancer. So people above a certain age who develop uh, diabetes mellitus, in some cases, it may be worse excluding pancreatic cancer. But this is more valid for type 2. For type 1, it's, it's a rarer event. And you were talking about the, uh, the messaging between the beta cells and the immune system. Are you talking about extracellular vesicles? or other mechanisms? Well, extra ve extracellular vesicles is one of the mechanisms. There was a paper a couple of years ago from some colleagues in Switzerland, Romano Regazzi, where they showed that uh, there are signals delivered by the beta cells via extracellular vesicles that can activate uh, immune cells and the other way around. So there are signals delivered by T cells that may contribute to kill beta cells. What we have been looking, and I think there is more uh, available data, is a group of proteins called chemokines that attract immune cells. So what this we, we have shown some years uh, ago, that when the immune cells start to invade the islets of Langerhans, one of the mechanisms that they use to kill beta cells is the release of cytokines. So cytokines are uh, protein uh, mediators that can be used for cell-to-cell -cell communication, but in the context of the beta cells, it can also lead to their damage. And these cytokines, they are bound to receptors at the surface of the beta cell, and they convince the beta cell to release another class of protein called chemokines. And these chemokines will call additional immune cells. So this is part of this uh, dialogue that I was uh, describing. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And we have seen this not only in vitro, but when you do histology of pancreas from patients with type 1 diabetes mellitus, you can see that the beta cells are expressing some chemokines and that the immune cells who are invading the islets of Langerhans, they are expressing the receptor for this chemokine. 
So it's a real dialogue taking place. Do uh, people have a fixed number of beta cells and they die off or do the beta cells uh, divide, but the, the immune yeah, response overwhelms the, the cell division? That's a very good question. Uh, until a few years ago, most of the research in the field was done in mouse and mice and rats, they have a capacity for beta cell division. In human being, our beta cell patrimony, it's more or less established when we are around 15 years old. So the capacity of the beta cells after this period to divide is extremely limited. They are a little bit like neurons. So it's not a good idea to lose beta cells because we are not able to replace them. There has been a lot of research to try to induce human beta cells to proliferate. Recently, there has been some success, but for the time being, it's pretty limited. So I think we work with this concept that after our teenager years, we have the beta cells like that, that we are going to have, like uh, the neurons that we have in the brain. So is there a particular population size of beta cells that the average person has? And do they divide at all? Are they slow dividing or are they fixed and they just decline with age? Well, they actually, they don't really decline. We, for instance, people who are uh, obese, they have insulin resistance. So the beta cells need to work two, three times more than the normal. And the beta cells just cope. We now know that the beta cell population is heterogeneous. Probably you have beta cells that function more than uh, others. It's conceivable that some beta cells function as uh, pacemakers, that they give signal for the whole islet of Langerhans. But coming to your first question, the average amount of islets of Langerhans that an adult human being has is around one, one uh, a million. And each islet of Langerhans may have between 300 and 2,000 beta cells. So this is the mean. So you, you have people who have much less, others who have more. Yeah, it sounds very similar to the number of uh, glomerular filtration units in the kidney, about a million. It's theorized, so interesting. Yeah. So further down the line, when someone has type 1 and their beta cell population declines, is there a commensurate decline in their, in their kidney function and in other factors? I've heard there's, uh, there's comorbidities that, that arise over time. So these comorbidities, particularly retinopathy affecting the eyes and kidney disease, uh, diabetic nephropathy, it's now clear they are mostly related to poor glucose control. There is some genetic predisposition, but the main factor for what we call the microangiopathic complications of diabetes mellitus is the chronic hyperglycemia. And there are some very large studies showing that the best the control of the glycemic levels the less is the risk for this, this uh, complication. And in general, this complication, they are late. Uh, many people never will develop them. Others who develop in general, particularly nephropathy, the most common is after 15 or 20 years of uh, disease. 
it's interesting because I started, I am a MD and I was trained as an uh, endocrinologist. And my first research line was on uh, di diabetic nephropathy. And this was many years ago when the therapy was much uh, worse. And we saw quite a few cases. It was very, it was a very serious complication. Today, this is much, much rarer. And the improvement, funny enough, was mostly technology. It was better insulin pens that are much easier to inject and now continuous glucose monitoring, which seems to improve control. And one thing that is being developed is what's called the closed loop system, which is some kind of uh, artificial pancreas. So it's a technological advance that would measure continuously glucose level and inject insulin according to the need. This is a very interesting approach. The two potential problems is that it needs to be completely safe because if the patient, for instance, entered in hypoglycemia and this is not detected and the machine continues to inject insulin, this can have serious consequences. And the other problem is that our pancreas release insulin in the portal system. So most of the effect of insulin is in the liver and uh, two thirds of the first insulin release will be degraded in the liver. When we are treating a patient with uh, insulin, this is injected in the periphery. So to achieve a physiological level of uh, insulin in the portal system, you need to inject or expose the periphery to two or three times higher levels of uh, insulin. And this may be one of the components of the cardiovascular uh, risk. So it's still difficult to reach a completely physiological control, even with a computer-based system. Yeah. Well, I know that there's insulin pumps, but they're not connected typically to uh, CGMs. And I, you know, it seems like uh, type one diabetics, if they use an insulin pump, or, or even if they don't, the act of going to, the, to sleep for the night can be a life or death thing. So yeah. there definitely needs to be more control and monitoring because I, you know, I mean, thank God I don't have type one, but I wouldn't want to be worried every time I go to sleep that I could you know, not wake up. It's true. One thing that I think is positive, with, I, I just read a paper last uh, week. I, I don't work on it, but I am always curious about novelties in diabetes treatment. And some people who have uh, diabetes for many years, they start to become insensitive to hypoglycemia. So in general, when you get hypoglycemia, you probably know you start to sweat, you feel danger, you feel you don't feel well, and you feel the urge to eat, and the problem is solved. But you have some people that after many years of repeated hypoglycemia, they do not detect this early symptom. So they may progress fastly to a more severe form. And it seems to be that when they use this uh, continuous glucose monitoring, particularly if you have a beep that will alert you when your glucose is going down, 
this seems to decrease in a, in a significant way the number of uh, hypoglycemic uh, situations that they may have. What about uh, microbiome? I've heard from a lady named Florencia McAllister that they looked at people that had pancreatic cancer and the, the tumors on the pancreas had literally a localized microbiome that was different from the rest of the pancreas. So this may be a very important area of study, both the pancreatic microbiome and the gut microbiome to look for differences in type one, type two, and you know, healthy people. Yeah, this is a very interesting topic. I, I have seen this paper also, it's really intriguing. In the diabetes field, the main focus have been in the bacteriome in the gut. And there are correlative studies suggesting that, for instance, in type 1, uh, there, is, there are changes in the bacteriome that precedes disease. And one of the most fascinating studies that I read is by a Finnish group, is uh, Mikkel Knip and, and colleagues. In Finland, during the Second World War, Russia or the Soviet Union then invaded Finland and the Finnish fought back. They managed to have the Russians going out, but they lost part of Finland. It's an area called Karelia. So today you have a Finnish Karelia and a Russian Karelia. Uh, it's the same population with a genetical background identical. And uh, in the Finnish back, in the Finnish Karelia, the incidence of type one is four to five fold higher than in the Russian Karelia. And I mean, these are people that are 50, 100 kilometers apart with the same genetical background, but of course they are separated by a, by a closed border. And then uh, Mikkel Knip and their colleagues, they did a study of the bacteriome on these two populations. And there was indeed important differences, mostly in the type of E. coli that the Russians had compared to the, to the Finns. And I think this was one of the most uh, interesting studies suggesting that uh, bacteriome indeed may play a role what is exactly this role is not clear. It may be related, for instance, to decrease inflammation, uh, to decrease signals that will uh, activate the immune system. This remains to be clarified. You know, getting into the signaling itself, what specific, uh, is there like antigen presentation on the surface of the beta cells that causes the immune response? Or do you know? Yeah, there are. This is something that we have been working also together with some colleagues in Paris, uh, Roberto Maloney. So we now, today we know that there are at least eight uh, antigens uh, that are presented by HLA class one in the surface of the beta cells and that can be recognized by the immune system. One of the problems is that the, in many cases, the first antigen is insulin itself. And this is bad news because the immune system has an elephant memory. So if you are going, for instance, to transplant beta cells or even to use inducible pluripotent cells and introduce them in the patient, the first thing that the immune system will see is uh, insulin. And when they see 
insulin, again, they will grow curious and they will try to go to the cells that are producing it. And indeed, many years uh, ago, there was a, a study in the US, it was a, is a surgeon called the Sutherland, and he transplanted a fragment of pancreas between identical twins. So one had type one, the other not. And he transplanted just around 10, 20% of the tail of the pancreas. And it was wonderful. The patient who received the transplant immediately grow with the normal glycemic. But unfortunately, after a few weeks, the blood glucose started to go up uh, and they eventually returned to the hyperglycemic state. So Sutherland removed this uh, transplant that was not working and the immune system was there again, attacking the pancreatic beta cells. So uh, the fact that insulin is one of the key antigens is a, is a big problem. Well, the beta cells themselves are the main producers of insulin? Yes, they are the sole producers. Uh, you may have very small amounts in certain areas of the brain, but the main source of uh, insulin are the pancreatic beta cells. Really, they are the only source from- Has anyone source. studied the, the, bio, the, you know, the biochemistry of the biogenesis of insulin? And also the, yep. the secretion mechanism, like does insulin come out packaged in, in a in membrane or does it just naked come out of the cell through certain channels? This is, a, this is something that is studied intensively. So insulin is uh, translated in the endoplasmic reticulum, which is a cell uh, organelle, and then it is transported to another area of the cell called the Golgi. And there it is packed in uh, insulin granules. So you have some insulin granules that are docked closer to the membrane. Others are more inside the uh, cell. And when the beta cells uh, metabolize uh, glucose, this releases a chain of signals that lead these granules to fuse with the cell membrane and release uh, insulin to the extracellular uh, part, let's say. And one of the things that this we, we found some years uh, ago is that one of the mechanisms of beta cell dysfunction is what we call endoplasmic reticulum stress. So there is a overburden on the endoplasmic reticulum that they, they have problems to produce and sort this uh, insulin to the Golgi. And indeed, there were some colleagues in uh, Indianapolis, uh, Emily Sims and Carmela Evans Molina, that they have shown that people in the early stages of type one, they have a higher level of pro-insulin, which is the, the, the precursor uh, molecule of uh, insulin as compared to insulin itself. So it seems to be that as the beta cells start to get uh, unhappy and under fire, they still try to produce, let's say, pro-insulin, but they have a big problem to convert it into the mature form. So this is also one of the early phenomena that happened uh, in the early stages or even before type 1 starts, which is a increased level of pro-insulin as compared to insulin. So once the granules fuse with the outer membrane, I guess they butt off. It's like an exocytosis. 
Yes, it's a a classical regulated exocytotic process. So they are channeled to the membrane. They are uh, proteins that are specialized, for instance, SNAP25 and so on. They are channeled to the membrane. They fuse and they uh, release uh, insulin. So the, um, the beta cells that express insulin on their membrane, do you think there's just a failed exocytosis or... You know, what, what would you guess is the reason? Well, they, it is not that they express insulin in the membrane. For the immune system to recognize a protein that a cell is uh, expressing, it needs to be expressed in the context of a surface protein called HLA class 1. So, for instance, when a cell gets a viral infection, the immune system recognizes that there is a virus inside this particular cell because fragments of the virus are processed intracellular and are presented to the immune system in the context of this uh, HLA class one. So what happened with the insulin molecule is not that the immune system recognizes the whole molecule, they will recognize one fragment that is presented in the context of HLA class one. And one thing that we have found, and this was something that we found at the IBRRI, is that some of the signals that the immune system release uh, upregulate HLA class one and upregulate antigen presentation to the immune system. So this is, again, part of this uh, dialogue between the immune system and the beta cells. And it's only part of the dialogue, too. There's a lot more elements, I'm sure. There are. And the other complicating issues that we probably have what we call antigen spreading. Uh, So the immune system probably starts recognizing one or two antigens. Probably uh, insulin is perhaps the first one. And then it broads. So by now, we and other people have discovered up to eight antigens. And probably this is not the whole story. I remember uh, once I heard, uh, sorry, say, no, I I was just going to say that once I heard uh, a lecture uh, of a NIH uh, director who was discussing autoimmune diseases. And he was telling that he was presenting what the NIH was doing to the Congress. And uh, one of the congressmen, or woman, I don't remember, asked him, how can you send a, a man or a woman to the moon and we cannot cure autoimmune diseases? So he showed a slide of a rocket engine, which is complicated, but you can more or less get it. And then he showed a slide of the metabolism of a pancreatic beta cell and all the pathways involved. And it's several fold more complicated. Biological systems are unbelievably complicated, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, autoimmune diseases is a situation where you need to convince the immune system to forget what they have already seen. And indeed, this is one of the reasons that made me move, let's say, to the IBRI in Indianapolis is because this is a place where we are trying to do translational medicine. So we are really doing basic research with the goal of translating to treat diseases. 
And I think there you have an uh, environment where this is at least in theory possible. So I think it's something that I really would like to pursue further. Well, very good, that's how it's, it's, a, it's really easy to talk to you and ask questions and I, I appreciate it. What's the, the best way for people to follow your research from here? I think you, they can go to the website of the IBRRI. So Lisa is posting all our new publications. This website is pretty good, so you can get an idea of all the research lines that the Institute is doing. And Lisa posts on Twitter each time that there is a new publication. And I guess that our podcast today, Lisa will probably also announce it. So I think if people want to follow what we and the other colleagues at the IBRI are doing, the easiest way is go to the website and also follow us on Twitter. Well, very good. Well, Desio, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.